The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 40 of The Things We All Carry. Today I'm joined by Mary Cobal, a sociologist from the Richmond, Virginia area. I first heard of Mary from her presentation at a fire service diversity conference. That conference was centered around diversity, equality, and inclusion within the fire service. Mary and I sat down and discussed issues surrounding women in the fire service, power dynamics, and how stereotypical beliefs affect both the women and those dynamics. This conversation ranges in topics, yet barely scratches the surface of what needs to be discussed. I challenge my listeners to listen to this episode with an open mind. One addendum to this show, Mary couldn't remember the book title she wanted to share. She sent a text later telling me the book is Privilege, Power, and Difference by Alan G. Johnson. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and the recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Mary, how are you? I'm good. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Where are you this morning? I live in North Chesterfield, so I'm home at my home in Chesterfield, hanging out with my dogs this morning. And you were telling me earlier that it's a high squirrel day in your yard, so the dogs might dogs may, might make a guest appearance. They may. I've got one inside and one outside right now, and I'm trying to figure out if I can go sit down and relax or if I have to stay on guard at the door here. <laughs> but it wouldn't be the first show that I had dogs make a, an appearance, so I don't mind it at all, just okay, so you know. Great. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? What's family life like? I grew up in Western Pennsylvania in a small town, not far from Pittsburgh, probably about an hour and 15 minutes from Pittsburgh. One of the things that I learned from not being in Pennsylvania is that people think you're either from Philly or Pittsburgh. That's it. That's all we've got. But I'm in one of those small farm towns, college towns in between called Indiana. And I grew up there with my mom and my dad and my brother. I'm the youngest of the family. My parents adopted a teenager when I was a teenager. So I, I have a, now I have a middle sister. I have her 35 years, but did not grow up with her. So that was an interesting family dynamic. Mom. So the hometown that I'm from, Indiana, is interesting. Because you have the college there, which brought a lot of diversity and interesting people, but it's also was a coal mining town, uh, manufacturing town. At this point, due to shifts in the economy, it's only a college town now, but you definitely have this working class college middle-class divide in the town growing up. I went to IUP, Indiana University of Pennsylvania, for my undergrad and completed that in 98. Took me quite a few years to get through college. I became uh, parents right out of high school. 
And so took a year off before I went to school. And then it took me about seven years to get my bachelor's degree, taking some time off here and there. So it's not a real traditional academic story. I went into college wanting to major in psychology, quickly learned that sociology was much more my thing. I enjoyed the classes. It made the world make sense to me in a way that the psychology classes just didn't. Always knew I wanted to further my education, knew that I wanted to teach college, but just didn't have the economic ability to go straight through. So worked for about seven years and then went back to IUP. I had left the area for a while and then I moved back, went back to IUP for my master's degree. And in true Mary fashion, it's supposed to take two years to get a master's. It took me five, had some hiccups in the road there too. Birth of my second child, divorce, all kinds of fun that kind of made the road to the master's degree a little bumpy. Finished my master's degree in 2010. December of 2010, knew I wanted to get as far away from rural Pennsylvania as I could, yet still be close enough to visit family and friends. That's how I ended up in Richmond 11 years ago now and have had several jobs since moving here. I came to work administratively at a college in the area, was laid off two years later, started teaching adjunct, did that full-time for nine years, which sounds funny because adjuncts aren't full-time workers. But what I did is I pieced things together by working at various colleges each semester so that I had enough classes to live. And just recently, this past summer, got a full-time job for the first time in, in nine years. Um, and now I'm in learning development with a nonprofit in the area. So still teaching, but not strictly sociology and just helping people improve their skill to either promote within the company or reach their career goals outside of the company if that's what they choose to do. What did so you that's get? just a little bit about me. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. What did you get your master's in? Sociology. Okay. And <laughs> Yeah, master's in sociology. A lot of people that I went to school with, their goal was to work in human services. That was not my direction. I knew I wanted to be an academic, a sociologist. So mine was not applied. It was theoretical sociology. And my assistantship in grad school was focused with a teaching focus. So I always was paired with faculty that knew I wanted to be an instructor when I graduated. So lifelong dream is to get a PhD, but financially that's just not in the cards, working with what I was dealt. So what are some of the, what are some of your, your specialty areas? Because we've talked about you and I had a long conversation a couple of weeks ago. We probably spent two hours mm -hmm. on the phone and we kind of pinballed ar around a few subjects. <laughs> and it, right. you and I, we also just talked earlier that was it was one of those conversations where you just got caught up and we didn't realize how much time we had taken. What are some of those specialty areas that you're working in now, either in your job or outside of it? So social inequality has always been something that I wanted to understand better. So that was the specialization area for me in undergrad and in graduate school. I do some consulting on the side, which is how you and I met. I do some diversity, equity, inclusion, working into the accessibility and broadening my knowledge base into a disability now as well. But I presented at the Fire Service Diversity Conference this past October and have done that maybe five or six other times through 
through the last uh, nine years. So this idea of how do we create a more equitable society? How do we cultivate equity and inclusion in the workplace is a passion of mine. And more recently, in the fall of 2020, I became trained in what's called the trauma-informed lens and then furthered that to what's called a trauma-supportive care certification. Became very passionate about that and seeing how important that was to equity and inclusion and understanding people in the building of empathy. So I became, took the train the trainer courses and became certified as a trainer in those areas. Um, and that's done a lot to help me broaden my teaching base. And that's what helped me transition out of adjuncting into working for a company that was looking to broaden their DEI work and training. And actually next week, I'm going to be going to um, trauma-informed leadership certification workshop. And I'll be working to get a trauma-informed leadership certification in the coming months. And I know that we're going to set a, set aside time in the future to talk about the trauma-informed piece because I think it fits very well with what firefighters, what they experience and what this show is about, obviously. Mm -hmm. But today we set this time aside to talk about equity and diversity. And I'm going to say in a fire service, but you're, you don't specialize mm -hmm. in just the fire service. You specialize in, in if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, male-dominated occupations, correct? I would say that I took what I know about sociology and what I know about culture. Um, and all the study I've done in social inequality, and I geared it toward how women navigate being part of male-dominated fields. Academia is one of those fields. <laughs> so part of it came from my own experience of how as a woman in academia, how can I be taken seriously? Um, how can I get my students to respect me? as an expert in my field and in my topic. And so I've, I've not done any research myself. I don't know how many of your listeners know, but in order to do research, you need funding for that research. A lot of so, funding too. A lot of funding. And I've never been in a situation where anyone wants to give me money to do the research. I am hugely interested in doing. I've, I'm a huge consumer of scientific information in sociology. So I've done a lot of reading and I've gotten my head around a lot of what the experts who are doing the research are saying is happening when it comes to these things. And then I try to take that and create workshops for various businesses. The fire service has been one of my best customers, we'll say. They seem to like what I have to say and, and how I teach it. That's really been a big benefit for me. But through the Diversity and Equity Conference, I was invited. Portsmouth hosts a national women in fire service conference. And I was invited to speak there. Took the more general information about women in dominated, male-dominated fields and I applied it to the best of my understanding of the fire service to that. And it's, no one, no one's told me I'm wrong. That's a plus. Uh, women, are, <laughs> yeah, women are saying, yeah, this is my experience. This is how this works for me. The biggest problem I have is that I think that people want me to have the answer. And I have some very general answers on like how to get it, how to make things better. And it takes 
there are multiple levels in society. There's the individual and then there's small interpersonal relationships and then small groups and then categorizations of people. And then we've got culture. So there we went from like micro sociology all the way to macro, but I tend to be better at addressing things on a more micro level because the macro level takes such change on such a large scale. And I think we're moving in that direction as a culture, as a society, but it's often a a two steps forward, one step back. And I've actually seen two steps forward, four steps back before there's If we push too hard, too fast, we get a backlash where we're really trying to push whatever the group is that's trying to change the status quo. We try to shove even, the dominant group tries to shove even harder and take away progress that's been made. Like you're getting a little too big for your britches. We need to put you back in your place. Um, So what I feel like, I know that you grab some questions from people and the questions that I get from my audiences at the conferences, they're like, all right, so you've shown us the problem, you've shown us where the problem comes from and how the problem's perpetuated. How do we stop it? How do we fix it? And there, there are suggestions there. I'm not saying that I don't have any ideas on how to change culture. The problem comes in that there's a lot of people who are out of my control Yes, that have to make changes. And I, we can't force that change to a certain degree, to a certain level. If we look at civil rights, it's the same kind of thing. Yes, there was a forced change, but that didn't fix all the problems. And we still have structural issue with that as well. So that was my point there. I know that some people are looking to me as an academic to say, here's how you fix this. But it's not, there's so many levels that need tweaks that need and some that need to be completely torn down and rebuilt. And that's not a one person answer. I'd be much richer than I am today if I knew how to fix this. Oh yeah. And I think that's the reason why I wanted to have the discussion is not to look for concrete answers. It was just to, I don't know, just bring some, shed some light on some things. I had a discussion with a coworker the other day and he swore that things were good in the department. Nobody was doing those typical things you would see years ago, not to be crass, but sending dick pics to a female, female colleague without, and no, it does still go on. And he was blown away to find out that it still goes on. And, and my point to him was it takes us to, who are aghast by it to step up and say, wait a second, no. And to normalize that reaction takes, is part of it, in my opinion. I would wholeheartedly support that opinion. (laughs) Before I started recording, we had talked about some of the questions and we actually got into, pretty had gotten into some pretty good conversation about them. So hopefully we can recreate what you talked about. And I had some questions, like you said, I sent you a list of questions Mm -hmm. and then I surprised you with six more this morning and three actually coming from a teenage woman and in I just thought that was pretty, pretty interesting to come from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And the first one was pretty big and we discussed it. And I'd love to hear the background to, to the thoughts on the background of what, where this question came from. And it was, how can we change the perception of what a female is capable of doing? You had this great explanation of it's because our, it's our mind and it's, we're making assumptions with our mind about we're putting people into roles automatically because it's safer for us. Yeah, definitely. I don't know how to do this without getting too deep in, into things. And you can decide what to keep and what not to keep from this. On a real basic level, human beings are born, we're not fully wired. Our brains are not fully wired. We know this because 
we need the care of other humans in order to survive. There are many species out there that when they're born um, or hatched or whatever they do, they are immediately ready to go and live their life cycle. They have been hardwired to feed themselves, protect themselves, and reproduce. They can do all their things. Human beings aren't created that way. The two basic neural networks that we're born with are safety and connection. And so our brain become wired. One of the coolest things about this is that humans have the, the whole world as our habitat, right? So if we were born more wired, we wouldn't survive as well as we do in all these varied places. So really it's evolutionary evolutionarily very amazing so the, right so i understand it so the assumptions that we make protect <laughs> us because we inhabit and we walk amongst various parts of the world so everything is, is there for us and to, to keep us safe we have to make assumptions to protect ourselves so we're wired to the environment that we were born in because we experience that environment through our senses and we're taught lessons by the other humans around us and this is why when you go to another country, you experience culture shock because your brain's not wired to experience that environment as easily to navigate that environment as easily as the one you were born into. And this is why, and this is how we know things like our perceptions of what men do and what women do is not innate. It's not universal. It's not born into us. Because different cultures have different definitions of what is masculine and what is feminine. And if it was innate, if it was born in us, that men are this way and women are this way, all cultures, no matter where they are in the world, would have the same definition. And they don't. And we know that these things change over time. So if we look historically, what historically has been considered masculine and feminine has changed over time. So those are two of the main ways that sociologists have figured out this is what we think of as that's the way men are and that's the way women are. It isn't true. <laughs> that's not biologically what we are. A lot of what we are comes from the culture that we live in and how we were wired, how we learned. And going back to this categorization, what we do is our brain number one job is to keep us safe. And so we are taking in sensory input all the time and our brain is making a decision if this is right or not. And that's based on all the experiences we've had up to that point. And those experiences could be real. They could be something we lived. It could be something we read, something we watched, all kinds of things, how all the ways that sensory input is given to us and all the ways that learning happens. Um, and... That helps us to quickly categorize something as safe or not safe. And we make assumptions about how certain people or certain things will behave based on the experiences that we had previously. So in my experience, when I interact with this type of person, whether that interaction ever happened in real life or not, maybe it's what I've seen on TV over and over again, but this type of person behaves in this way. And so we get those ideas from the world around us. And then we quickly, unconsciously, this is where unconscious bias comes from, 
we unconsciously categorize that person. These are the things that they'll do. This is the way I expect that they'll behave. And this is really one of the basis building blocks of human culture is that we have these positions that we hold in society and our culture will define what are the beliefs and attitudes and behaviors of people who hold this position. Um, and we act as though those things are biological, born into us, normal, natural, and they are none of those things. They're all learned. And it's funny because um, at the beginning you told, you, you spoke of, of laziness. Right. That the unconscious bias part and a bias can be good or bad. Right. It's just a belief. Um, it's easier to keep that belief than to challenge exactly. it. Exactly. So metabolically, <laughs> it's easier to say this person fits this category. These are the things that are true about them. And so it takes very little metabolic energy for us to do that. To challenge that takes intentionality. Um, we actually have to engage the thinking centers of our brain, which uses metabolic energy. And so we have to choose to do it. We have to choose to engage that side. Otherwise, the brain's immediately going to go to the unconscious side. And then when we encounter something that doesn't fit what we think it should be, that will create another big can. For some people, that creates curiosity. I think you and I talked about that. When something doesn't fit the categories, we go, oh, wonder why that is. I want to know more about that. Let me know this person. Let me find out more about this person so that I can get a better picture. And I'm sure we don't, and I can promise you, I don't do that 100% of the time. But we have found in our statistical predictions that being curious has a better outcome than being hostile or re rejecting what's going on. So for us, we create safety and connection through being curious. Let me learn more about that. Let me expand the boxes that I've already created to include this new person that I've encountered and how they behave. But for some people, it actually creates threat where it's, wait a minute, you don't fit what I think a woman should fit, or you don't fit what I think a man should fit. That's dangerous. When people haven't fit the boxes that I've created for them, that's not turned out real well for me. And so you're now dangerous. And I'm going to be weary of you. I'm going to be suspicious of you. And then at times it actually becomes, it just feels scary to expand those boxes. Because if I'm wrong about what people who look like you are, then what else am I wrong about? And do I really understand my world? And if I start to allow these expansions, what other expansions do I have to make? And it really becomes this threatening place. And that's where people put up those defenses. That can't be. You can't be like that. Well, I'm telling you, I am like that. But you're not supposed to be like that because women don't do that. But I'm a woman and I do that. It's so threatening to the way that they envision their world that they have to reject that you're part of that. And the more we try to push that... For a person who's in that situation, it's actually more harmful 
because they become more defensive and then they will actually move into offensive behaviors where they actively try to get this person out of their lives, out of their situation, because you are such a threat to the way they see the world that they are going to lash out against you. So it's not just about protecting myself from you, but it's about going on the offensive and actually harming you to get you out of my space. Yeah. And, because and, and it's all threat. just in the status quo because that person feels safe in that status quo. Exactly. Exactly. And it's when I can look at it academically, it makes sense to me. Where we really struggle is that person's offensive and defensive behaviors become harmful to other people. And my way of being is I get more concerned about the person who's being harmed than the person who's uncomfortable in doing the harming. So that's, I guess that's my own personal where I'm trying to, I've been working to better understand the point of view of the person who's doing the harming. I've been working <laughs> to, to do better in that area because my defenses are that I want to lash out at that person. And that's not helpful. We're not getting anywhere if that's what we're doing. And I think that that's interesting because that point right there about kind of lashing out or how women are perceived in, in and I'm going to just use fire service because that's my area. That's um, fine. It goes back to one of the questions that I shared with you in an email was that uh, asked walking into a situation and this person wants their ideas to be accepted, but she feels like she has to dumb herself down and be prepared to to tiptoe around egos of the males, of the men. And, the, and so I think that relates to exactly what you're saying, correct? Yeah. Because if so she the, doesn't um, tiptoe around it, it's a full frontal assault on them and their belief system. Exactly. Exactly. So this is where the solving of the problem becomes quite complicated. And in our society, <laughs> um, the person who is not part of the dominant group tends to be the person everybody expects to make the change. So from your, the person who asked the question, she said, when do I get to stop changing my approach to acquiesce to the dominant group? And when can I just start being me and knowing what I know and they have to change? When do they have to change? Exactly. And all I can say is I relate to that frustration. I don't know. And there are times when I will, when I have, because it takes a lot of emotional energy, there are times when I have the emotional energy to make my point or make my suggestions palatable to the dominant group. And there are times when I come in like a bulldozer and I'm like, deal, this is what we're doing. Neither are perfect solutions. The person on the receiving end of that has to be willing to make change. The person on the receiving mm. end of what you, of what you're telling somebody is that what you, okay. Yeah. And if they're not willing to change, obviously you're speaking to a brick wall. And so it probably wouldn't matter whether I finessed my way into that conversation or if I bulldozed 
my way into that conversation because they weren't going to hear what I had to say probably either way. The, uh, the attacks from, a, from someone in the dominant group, is that where the term microaggressions comes from? They can be microaggressions. They can be out-and-out aggressions. Okay, so maybe we start there. What is it? <laughs> Lay it out for my audience. What is a microaggression? Then? Microaggressions are unintentional ways that we harm others by not taking into account their perspective of how they experience the world. An example, and I hear this, <laughs> I heard this at the fire conference, not this past one, but one few years ago. A chief, I was having lunch with one of the firefighters that I had gotten to know and her, her chief, and he asked what I did. We had this little conversation and he put his hands on her hand and patted her hand. And he said, this one here, she's one of the good ones. <laughs> and I said. To insinuate that there aren't, there, the rest aren't good. Some women in the fire service aren't good firefighters, but this one is different. Anytime you make somebody the exception, you're reinforcing the rule. And so I corrected him. I said, I want to talk to you about what you just did. Because I could see it in her face. That was not a compliment to her. And it, it, it hurt. And I did my best to explain to him why that's hurtful. Now, I don't know if it helped or not. I know it helps that I said it, not her. Because somebody else um, recognized it. Someone right. from a position of, of knowledge. But I don't know how much good I did in the long run overall. And I was going to um, say the words are one thing, but even just a patronizing pat on the hand, you, you're not going to do so that to him. You're not going to do that to him. How a, many times has a chief patted you on the hand right. and said... He's one of the good ones. Exactly. Right? Yeah, my chief hasn't said yes. that about me often. <laughs> it's, it's patronizing. It is. It's very patronizing. And it's it's like, I. one of the things I hear most frequently from the women in the fire service is, there are two sides to this coin. I want to be seen as a woman in the fire service because I want people to see women as capable in the fire service. But really, I want you to see me as a firefighter. I don't want you to see me as a woman firefighter. I want you to see me as a firefighter. Because the term firefighter is where that respect comes from. That's a respected term. When we put woman in front of it, we've qualified it. And that's where we get into this good one, not good one. But it's, as I said, it's a double-edged sword. So in some of the ways of expanding people's thinking, we need them to see women as capable, competent, strong, decisive, all of those things so that we can be seen as good firefighters or it, professors or whatever we are. As I sit here listening to that, 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 um, it's almost a battle. There's a dichotomy there. I want to be accepted as a woman in the fire service, but I want to be viewed as a firefighter. And right. and I can understand what you're saying there, the delineation there. But then I jump ahead to some of the some of the comments that someone gave to me to bring to you, and mm -hmm. I think it relates to that. So if you say mm -hmm. yes, I want to be seen as a woman in the fire service, 
but I also mm-hmm. want to just be seen as a firefighter. Things like mm-hmm. the gear for women, station mm-hmm. and PT gear or bunker gear or how the things are tailored only to men or even something like breastfeeding. Where do mm-hmm. you pro- provide that place to breastfeed or maternity leave? The feeling of not wanting to seem like you took too much time to come back. You know, what's, where's that fine line? It's saying, hey, I just want to be seen as a firefighter. Gives these people in power the tool to say, here you are. If you just want to be a firefighter, right. this is what it is. You take this or leave it. So that's where it's more nuanced. So people say, do you want to be a woman firefighter? Do you want to be a firefighter? I want to be both. Guess what? I'm both. So that's an issue of equity and inclusion, right? In order for me to do my job the way you do your job, I need you to have gear that fits me. Asking for something special. Asking for the tools I need. This relates to... Somebody you said to, to get in contact with was Allie. And mm-hmm. in her story, she talks about when she first got into the fire service, they would not give her the gear that fit. So right. she had gloves that were way too big and she had no dexterity. Mm-hmm. And not only no dexterity, but when they're too big, they're going to come off. And so it does. that's your real life application to it right there. Exactly. And that was them saying, we'll let you in, but you don't belong here. We'll let you in. You don't belong here. Play by our rules. So... When I work in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, diversity is having is inviting people. And sometimes they think that's enough. I let you in the door. Equity is providing people with the tools they need to be successful. So I need gloves that fit me in order to do this job successfully. And if you don't give me that, you've done nothing. You've done nothing to help this situation. And the inclusion part is I don't even have to ask. Inclusion is you invited me and you already have the gear I need. I didn't have to ask for it. Yeah, that's a massive difference. It really is because diversity without equity and inclusion further traumatizes already marginalized and traumatized people. And that's not my quote. Dr. Greenfield at the last conference said that, and it rang so true for me. I thought it was beautiful. When you invite me, but you don't include me, all you've done is further alienate me and make me feel even more different than I felt before. It was better to not be invited than to be invited and excluded. Because the latter is a bit of subterfuge where you're saying, oh, no, come on in. And in reality, it's just, we'll let them in. Let's see how fast we can get rid of them. And it's, it is, it's a bait and switch. I let my guard down because I think you've, you're, you want me here. And then you reject me again. And now it's, this is where the people, the dominant group, gets to say, I gave them the opportunity and they couldn't hack it, told you they couldn't hack it. So by inviting me, but not including me, you've allowed the victim blaming part to, to be, to dominate the conversation. It wasn't that we didn't give you the opportunity. It's that we gave you the opportunity and couldn't handle it. So, that, that extrapolates out all, to all women exactly. in their minds. And we don't look at this and this just popped into my head with what we're saying. And I don't have the statistics here, but we do this in a lot of other areas where we, we look at how many women leave the fire service every year. How many women will just say can't handle 
this job and how many leave within the first year, the second year, the third year, whatever. Um, but how many men leave, right? Oh yeah. So we're comparing apples and oranges. Like we're not looking at the total picture. Like, I don't know what retention numbers are. I'm going to guess from my limited knowledge, it's a hard job. (laughs) And there's going to be a lot of people who think this is the fit for me And they get there and they find out being a firefighter is nothing like they thought it was going to be. And it's a challenge that they just don't feel ready for whatever reason. And so, but men who do that don't get, it's not, men can't hack the fire service. Look at that. Another man left. We become representative of our entire sex when we can or cannot do something Especially if we can't. Yeah, I was going to so, say, I bet I bet the flip side of that is when you can do something, it doesn't give nearly the amount of credit across the spectrum as it should. Because we're the exception. We're one of the good ones. Hence, the, yeah, the chief patting the hand saying, this is one of the good we're ones. We're one of the good ones. We're, so if we can do it, and if we do it well, we're one of the good ones. We're the exception to the rule. But all those that leave, they're the rule. Told you they couldn't hack it. Classic damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yep. And that's the double bind. And that that's actually the title of the conference speech workshop. It's, it's a workshop that I try not to lecture. It's the, yeah, it's the workshop that I do. It's called the double bind. And that's the best explanation of it. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. If I play my role of firefighter, my credibility as a woman is questioned. And... If I play my role as a woman, my credibility Mm. as a firefighter is questioned. You just can't win. So I can't be good at both at the same time. And so when people ask me the question, how do we fix this? We need to expand what, how we define woman. We need to expand how we defend men, define men. These categories. Yes. I focus on how they harm women within these male dominated fields, but the analysis shows these categories are harmful to all of us. And you and I talked about this, I believe it was before we started recording today. When we see people as men and women, we stop seeing them as fully human. Um, and we attribute human behaviors and feelings and actions to either being masculine or feminine And we deny a person's full personhood when we do that. So I can be good at being a woman and be intelligent, articulate, confident, confident. But those aren't words that are generally associated with women. And you can be really good at being a man and be empathetic, compassionate, Caring, nurturing, and have the full range of human emotion. And where you see that. And still be good at being a man. <laughs> as I say, where you see that flare up, especially in the fire service, is the fact that for the longest time, you weren't supposed to admit that, that anything affected. Because how could you be, how could, for lack of better terms, how could you be a man and mm-hmm. let this shit affect you? How exactly. can you be a firefighter and let this shit affect you? And that. Because that, you're a person yeah that that's what i was gonna say that general the general assumption of what we are was is part of that blockage it is and that's an area that hurt just as much for that as i do for women who aren't seen as competent and capable 
and yeah, uh, they're both... articulate and all of that. They're both tragic. Right. Our society and our culture does not do a good job of allowing us to be fully human. And that's really my passion <laughs> is that comes, that's what diversity and equity and inclusion is all about. My, my latest dive into the research has to do with neurodivergence. And so it's that what is society doing to people with neurodiversity that makes them feel less fully human, less fully part of society. It, and I think for me, it's because neurodivergent people hit it right on the head when they say, I don't human correctly. I'm mm-hmm. seen as less than human. So it takes gender and sex completely out of it. It's like, I don't person the way people think we should person. And I feel less than and broken my whole life because you see the way that I process the world as, as flawed, as, as, yeah. functional. And I just, my, I'm like, no person should feel less of a human being for who they are. It's devastating for me. The neurodivergence is interesting to me. I think when we talked a couple of weeks ago, I discussed what I did in the past working with autistic mm-hmm. kids. And so I see, I pick up on little clues here and there with a lot of firefighters. And I truly believe there's a pretty high incidence of neurodivergence in, in the fire department. And it's, I think That's it's pretty fascinating to see. Um, but I think you're right. For me, myself, you said I, I can't human the way other people do. And I don't really want to human the, other, the way other people do. And I also just get tired of doing it. I just want to, mm-hmm. I need to get away from it. And right. some people call that introvert. I, sure. We'll call it whatever you want to call it. But there's a <laughs> point in time where I go, nope, I'm done with people. I got to go. And that is a, that, that's a neurodivergence. And it's because we aren't as a society creating safety and connection for people. Because if being with people made you feel safe and connected instead of made you feel like you have to put a mask on and be someone else you wouldn't find it as exhausting. And so any time we're in a situation where the people that we're spending time with create that feeling of safety and connection, we're not going to want to leave that situation as quickly. I'm not saying we'll never want to be alone because we all need to yep. be alone sometimes. Yes. But what's more exhausting is being in a social situation where I have to constantly be thinking, masking, constantly be paying attention to what I'm doing. And I never feel like I can be truly who I am. And so woman in the fire of rejection. You're right. For fear of rejection. Yeah. It's, I really in the past couple and I've, I thank what trauma informed lens has done to help me inform the rest of my thinking and DEI because it all comes back to, it really all comes back to that, that need for safety, that need for connection. And we are at birth hardwired for those two things. And when we are in situations, when those needs are met, we are free. We have the metabolic energy to be fully ourselves, to just allow ourselves to be who we are. We can learn, we can engage our executive functioning and plan and execute tasks and complete tasks because one of my areas is I'm great at starting things and suck (laughs) at finishing them. So I'm right there um, with you. So don't worry. 
Yeah. And it's funny you say you see a lot of neurodivergence in the fire service academia and so being the kind of person that I am that I assumed you were too from our conversation when I see difference or I see someone who doesn't fit my categories I get super curious excited I'm like oh wow I need I need to learn more about you I want to hear your perspective I want to see how you see the world I have a tattoo on my left forearm okay. and it says sinners welcome and it doesn't yeah. have to do with religion <laughs> it just what I envision as sinners in that case is are you different are you on the fringes are you are you outside the norm I want to know I want to that those yeah. are the people I want to hear from and I want to and I want to learn and be around and so that's what that 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 saying means to me and everyone thinks it's a mm-hmm. religious thing. I'm, it's not right. first of all, I'm an atheist, so it's not really a, a religious <laughs> right. thing, but mm-hmm. that knowledge of, all right, what makes that person tick? And how does mm-hmm. she have, for the lack of a better word, how does she have the balls to do that? And someone right. else doesn't. And I want to know right. that, that piece. Right. So in my double bind, um, presentation, I talk about that term, have the balls to yeah. do it. It's one of those phrases that we need to change. Yes, that's why I <laughs> said for lack of a better term. So Yeah, exactly, exactly. But if you think about, so if, because I've been challenged, people say we don't have these strict boxes of what men and women do. We're beyond that. And I say, okay, if I told you play like a girl, how would you feel? Hmm. Okay, you're not going to like that. Why? Because playing like a girl means you're inferior. If we didn't have these boxes, that would have no meaning to you. Right. Or I'm going to take your man card. If we had no boxes, that would have no meaning to you. That takes balls. There are women who say, like, he doesn't have the ovaries to do that. I don't know if you knew that was a phrase these days, but I know women who use it basically saying he's not tough enough to do it. Flipping the script on that. But Betty White is attributed with this quote, and I don't think she actually said it, but it's very widely a Betty White attributed quote and it's something i bring up towards the end of my my presentation and i say when people say it takes balls to do something meaning it takes courage that doesn't make any sense because balls are weak and (laughs) very very fragile if you wanted to know power we should say that takes a vagina because those can really take a pounding (laughs) and these things aren't even based in these phrases aren't even based in biology because, you know, that quote brings that out. We're talking biologically. The male genitalia is much more delicate and vulnerable than female genitalia because it's all enclosed and protected. And so if we were really looking at who had strong genitalia, we'd be attributing strength to women. So it makes no sense. Anyway, you brought it up. It brought it into my brain. And so we went in that direction. Can well, decide to keep it or not. <laughs> it's funny. While you were talking about that and you attributed it to Betty White, I was looking up a song that I remember from a few years ago. And it's by an artist. Her name was Elizabeth Cook. She's an alt country artist. And one of her songs, first of all, the title of that album is Balls. And okay. one of the songs is Sometimes It Takes Balls to Be a Woman. And it just goes okay. it goes along those lines. And it's her trying to flip that narrative a little bit. And that was back right. in 2007. She was she wrote the song. So it was just interesting. Okay. So I had to make sure I had the right title there before I <laughs> shared it with you. Hey, I'll have to look that up. I'll have um, to look that up. Before we, we end this, because we're going on mm-hmm. an hour now. I don't want to hold okay. up too much of your Sunday. Um, I wanted to broach <laughs> a subject. Coffee and dogs. That's what well, you're you me from. 
coffee and donuts. Then I apologize. One of the things I wanted to address was the one question, and I know this is a loaded question. Okay. It's the one is how does one address those microaggressions, the harassment, it, the sexual or not, without being seen as crying wolf because the reports I get from women in the fire service, especially after I've started this show, is just how endemic it still is in the fire service. Mm -hmm. It's still expected thing to open up a text from a coworker and see either a suggestive comment or a mm -hmm. photo. And, and it's still out there. And so at what point do you say, no, I, you can't do this. And at what point does it become, oh, and, or how do you do that without it becoming, oh, she's crying wolf. It has to be, it has to come from all levels of the organization. Find if this is, if this is endemic of your organization, of your firehouse, you need to bring someone in from the outside and the education needs to begin at the top and it needs to work its way down. You have to have the buy-in from the leadership that says this culture is not permitted here. And I'm a huge believer in education obviously. I was going to say, I hope you are. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it comes from knowing. And so let me share just a little bit of none of us are great at this. We've all been raised within the same culture. And here I am. I have a consulting company, a DE&I consulting company. And I have huge areas where I need to grow. And that's where it starts actually is knowing I the way I see the world is incomplete. All perspectives are incomplete. And until I open myself up to other perspectives and try to see the world from their experience, I am not going to have a more complete, I'm never going to have a complete picture. I'm never going to have a complete perspective, but I feel I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good when it comes to issues of gender, sexuality, LGBTQ plus. I'm pretty good when it comes to issues of race and ethnicity. Those are areas I've been studying for a really long time. And I purposely put myself and push myself to grow and learn. And in the last, my son is neurodivergent. And in the last, I want to say eight, six to eight years, I've done a lot to educate myself but it wasn't enough. And when I got hired at this new job and they read my resume, they put me on this committee and it was about creating trainings for managers on how to be a good manager when you have a person with disabilities on your, on your team. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's loaded. That's really tough huge. because, because it's not a matter of, it's not a, it's not a one size fits all. No, and that was, I was like, you're going to hate me on this committee because I'm a sociologist and I ask hard questions. I'm just going to put it out there. I said, I cannot teach you to be sensitive to all disabilities. Disability is a huge category. And if I work with you on neurodivergence, that's not going to help you work with your deaf associates or your blind associates no. or your associates in a wheelchair or you, no. I'm like, I can help in some ways, but I can't help in all ways. Like we can't have a one hour training to teach people to give a shit about other people. It doesn't work that way. Not at all. <laughs> not, <laughs> right? not at all. And not even if you give me two or three hours. I'm, I, 
can't do it. I'll even say you could <laughs> attempt to train them on how to work with a neurodivergent individual, but that doesn't mean that the next neurodivergent right. individual is going <laughs> to respond to the same thing. That's why you have people like me who went into these workplaces and developed specific behavior plans. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so my first job was to teach my committee, your goal is flawed. That yeah, was the first this- job. But I decided to see what I could do. And so I really started to dig deep. And I read a lot of articles, a lot of blogs, watched a lot of TED Talks. So for me, it was about how do people with disabilities feel they're being treated in the workplace? And how do we combat ableism in the workplace? And what I, in the probably 60 hours of time that I spent educating myself, is that I have a huge amount of education left to do. And about midway through my first week, I had to step back and say, I'm ableist. And I didn't even realize in all the ways that I'm ableist. There are phrases that I use that are harmful to people with disabilities. There are things that I do that don't account for the fact that other people may not have the same accessibility that I do. So I had this huge blind spot in my education and in my knowledge. And at first that hit me like sucker punch to the stomach. And then I had a real talk conversation with myself that said, wow, are you egotistical to think that you were done growing? Like dumbass. Yeah, newsflash. Why would you think that? Newsflash, there are perspectives you don't have and there are perspectives you haven't been exposed to yet and I gave myself permission to not know things huge and that's where some of this starts so if you're bringing in an educator to your firehouse hey we need to work on unconscious bias and progression the first thing we need to do is be humble enough to know that we don't know everything that we need to know and without that humility all we're going to get is defensive and offensive behaviors from people So I work very hard in my workshops to ensure that I'm creating safety. And one of the ways I do that is let people know I am still learning. There are still perspectives that I suck at. There are still times when I'm being educated. Stack, you've been great. There have been twice that I have, we'll call it, called you out. It wasn't in a bad way, but there have been twice that I pulled a phrase that you said gave you more information about why this isn't good or why this is harmful. And you are open hey, teach me. I want to know. If you weren't, that would have harmed our relationship and we couldn't have had the conversation we had today. What I do in my workshops is work really hard to let people know we're we're not here to beat you up for the stuff that you've done. There is a place for, I don't want to say beating people up, but there's a place for holding people accountable. Yes. Because what I say is, Here, once so white privilege, I teach about white privilege. Are white people shit because they didn't know they had white privilege? No. But are white people shit when they know they have white privilege and they still take advantage of it? Hell yes. Once you're aware that, and I became educated on this, there have been fire services where black applicants were, their test results were purposefully misgraded so that they didn't pass 
So there were at least 10 years worth of applicants where they thought they, oh, I studied, I worked really hard. I don't understand why I didn't pass. And they had. So the other thing, the flip side of that, there's the discrimination that happened. But the flip side of that is there's a lot of white applicants who got jobs that should have been beat out by someone who was more qualified than them. That's white privilege. Yes. Does that make the person who got the job an asshole? No, he didn't know. She didn't know. They didn't know that they they got their spot because somebody doctored test results. But if you know that test results were doctored and you still act like you earned your gold medal, that kind of makes you a jerk. It not it does. It makes you a jerk. So privilege so you have to we have to change people's minds we have to educate them sometimes we don't even know what a micro something we're doing is a microaggression it's like the chief who said this is a good one he thought he was complimenting this firefighter he truly in his heart thought he was doing something good he needed to understand why that's not good why that doesn't feel good to the person he's saying it to and then it's his responsibility to take that information and change it. And it can't always come from the person. You need to call out when men do shitty things to women. Because when I call out when men do shitty things to women, of course you'd say that you're a woman. So you don't have an ulterior motive. This is how people use privilege to change the culture. So don't, and this is another fine line. It's all very, it's not cut and dry. You don't speak for people, but you speak for them if they're not there. You ask permission. Just to, it's, I could take this one if you want. <laughs> like I could, are you feeling up for it today? Right. You want to fight this battle or do you want me to say something? Or it could be something you say later. Hey, I heard you say such and such. Let me tell you why that could be harmful or hurtful to somebody. Let me tell you why it was hurtful to me. Like, it hurts me when I hear people do things that maybe don't hurt me directly, but I know were hurtful to someone else that I care about. And I care about human beings. So that's not even just the relationship I have with that person. That we need to know. We need to know there's a problem. I didn't know that the things I was doing was were ableist. So that's the first step. And then teach me how to be better. And that also has to be my responsibility. So it isn't, oh my gosh, I have these ableist views. Let me go talk to people with disabilities and be like, teach me how to be less ableist and hurtful to you. That's putting the emotional work on them. No, I have something to learn. Let me go seek out the resources that are already out there for me to be better and do better. Before I start tapping into people randomly that I see, hey, t tell me why it's hard to work here when you have, when you use a wheelchair. Let me go look for people who've already put that information out there. What makes workplaces challenging to people in wheelchairs? So I take on the work. I take on the emotional energy. And then oftentimes people will see you doing the work. They become aware because things change in you. You behave differently. They might start opening up to you. They might start saying, hey, I noticed you stopped using this phrase. I want to thank you for, for not using that phrase. That was hurtful to me. So thanks for figuring out that it's a hurtful thing. And thanks for changing your behavior. And then 
it the reason it has to start at the top is that the top has to have the buy-in. Yes. So then you're always going to have the people who are like, this is just woke bullshit. I'm not on board with it. Fuck y'all because I'm just going to be me. And then what you have to do is create a culture of wokeness, if we want to use that term, where they don't feel comfortable using those that language, doing the things they were doing, and they will leave. They will eventually leave. Their offensive and defensive behaviors might get pretty big prior to them leaving, which may cause them to get fired, right? Because they'll start lashing out. But either way, they'll be gone. If you create a culture where it is known that the expectation is this behavior is not tolerated here, it becomes a lot easier to then get rid of those who aren't willing to take the shift and change. And then what you'll start doing is you'll start attracting people who already have that mindset because they'll see the culture that's created there and they'll want to be a part of it. I think I appreciate the, you had to change from the top, but there's a lot as well from the, from a, what we call a backstep firefighter, someone who just rides mm-hmm. in the back can start now. And then as a, get through those ranks, then that change is just is organically happening as well. And so I don't want yeah, the education has to go to everybody. My fear is the I just education has to go to everybody. I just didn't want so many out there listening and going, Oh, wait until my chief tells me I need to behave. No, get your shit straight. No, no, no. And then let's get right. and the buy-in comes from everybody. And it has, right. but what you're saying is that piece from the top has to be there as well for it to become a, you know, a department wide buy-in, a systemic change. Right. Because if I know if I'm a problem with my attitude toward women is a problem, but I know that my chief has my back, I'm not going to change. I may change what I do in front of particular people, but I know that culture is still permitted. I know that those, that the way I'm behaving is still permitted. People should be, when you're telling me that people are sending dick pics to coworkers, I'm like the fact that, that uh, that would enter someone's mind as being appropriate with a colleague, the problems are huge. Right. Because there should be a culture of professionalism that doesn't allow that. Like I don't use my, I have a work, I don't think you guys have work cell phones, but I have a work cell phone and a work computer. I would never send a text to my coworker that I wouldn't want to be on the company server. So when my coworker and I, who sometimes do things outside of work together, we text each other on our personal phones right? to say, but it's, there's a level, there's just got to be a level of professionalism that says a picture of my junk does not need to be sent to any of my coworkers. And if it's like, that's egregious, obviously that's egregious. But there's there's also this almost insidious tenor to some of the text of it's just enough wiggle room that the woman knows exactly what they're saying when mm-hmm. they're called on is oh no no I wasn't saying that that's I don't know how you took it that way and it's just enough it's just enough to it and it fucks with their mind and then they're like well did I imagine that and they're like no nope. you didn't imagine it because he came right back the next day and did it again see that's where it is I've set a boundary and I've said. Hey, Stack, when you said this and this, I felt uncomfortable about that. Let me set some clear boundaries here about this. And you were like, oh, I didn't mean it that way. I'm sorry. You took it that way. 
oh, great. Now we're on the same page about that boundary. In case everybody's wondering, didn't say anything rude to her. I said, I used the term female and male, and I was corrected to use woman (laughs) and man. And it makes sense when she breaks it down. So just in case anybody's... No, so I was just using an example. Right. Hey, here's my boundary. Here's what I want. And if you go back and you... And if you immediately go back and do it again... Yeah, you just disregard then, blatant disregard for boundaries. Ju- now that's blatant disregard. And now I can really call you out. Look, I told you before, this is not okay. I can't tell you the number of times, and funny side story. So I'm 50 years old. And in the last few years, I've noticed my interactions with students had started to change. And there's this great video out there with Tina Fey and Amy Schumer and there's a couple other female comedians but they're welcoming Amy Schumer and she's approaching the age of unfuckability (laughs) so it's when this is a thing in Hollywood where you stop being cast as the leading lady and you start being cast as somebody's mother and and I was like I have to tell you there's some freedom to reaching the age of unfuckability Like, I can't tell you the last time I was catcalled. Thank you. I can't tell you, like, this, like, the microaggressions that I literally used to have to, and you can talk to any woman you know, and most of them will say, some women will say, no, I've never experienced that. Or some women actually embrace the the objectification because it provides them with a feeling of self-worth. To a certain degree, that's a whole nother show. Oh, yeah. Most women you talk to will say, I prepare myself to leave the comfort of my home. There's like an armor you put on to be prepared for unwanted comments about how you look, whether it's positive or negative, being hit on, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just trying to live my life and you these men keep interrupting the living of my life with their behavior. And so I was talking to my students about that. Like I don't have to put armor on anymore. Nobody expects me to appear fuckable in public anymore. Thank God. But it's a freedom that has come with age. Um, So I, there's also, I remember very clearly those days of all I was doing was stopping at the convenience store to pick up a soda and this guy is leering at me. Fuck. (laughs) I'm uncomfortable. There's also something to be said about, about, I don't want to use the word aging because I'm actually older than you. And there's something to be said about just a comfort in your skin as well. You can start to grow into it. And sometimes it, Take something catastrophic to, to make you realize, oh, wait a second, I have to find out who I am and what I am. And once you do that, it's it, that's freeing in itself. Different for men and women. Yes. Women in society become unfuckable. Men in society become distinguished. So if you look at Hollywood, you'll see people like Michael Douglas, Sean Connery, Ford. The age difference between them and their leading ladies. Yes got bigger and bigger and there's the whole Leonardo DiCaprio joke. Yeah, the 25. So men become more more distinguished as they get older. And so I can see from your perspective there's a becoming comfortable with who you are and because for older men, women their age want to sleep with them, but younger women want to sleep with them too. Women get to an age nobody wants to sleep with you. It's like 
younger men don't look at you anymore and men your age are too busy looking at your daughters. There's definitely, I would say for women, a lot of that comes in the late, like in your thirties and in your forties is this like ownership of comfort, comfort in who you are, comfort in your own skin, owning your own sexuality, all of that kind of thing. But then society does something different with you. Um, When I start seeing the movies come out where women over 50 are leading women in the, and they're having, they're the romantic lead in something, then we can talk about how women own come into their own and all of that. But those, that just doesn't exist. That's, or if it is, it's totally on the fringe. Um, Like Grace and Frankie. That was groundbreaking stuff. That right. show. Women, women who are in their seventies, and I believe Jane Fonda is in her eighties, maybe, who were talking about sex, wanting to have sex, talking about the difficulties of sex as a senior citizen, all of that stuff. And that was like amazing in terms of what they did there. But think we need to change and it's we can change the minds of people at all ages i know that my son who's 18 has a different view of how to see women in with women you and i talked about how you were raised with female dominant households you saw women being whole people and so it's not unusual for you to see women as whole people and not just sexual objects. So there are ways to get that to permeate the greater culture. And I think that's that's the key right there is all these questions that we've thrown out and discussed a little bit today. It goes to that point right there. Do we get it Mm -hmm. to permeate the larger culture? And it's just, it's what we talked about. You start from the top, from the bottom. You make sure that to feel like you need to speak up for somebody or in somebody's defense. If they're not there, obviously do it. If they're there, then mm-hmm. check in. Just be mindful. Right. There's two terms. So I said I called you out. I actually called you in, which is the that makes is sense. A better term. Yes. So there's calling people in. That's a private conversation with someone. Hey, in the meeting, you said this. Let me tell you why this could be hurtful. I just wanted to let you know that's calling people in. That's protecting that person's, mm-hmm. it gives them the ability to go, oh my bad, and not feel the need to defend themselves. Um, we should always call people in before we call people out. Calling people out happens publicly right. in the group. And there are times when it's appropriate to call people out. And that usually is when whatever happened is so egregious, it has to be addressed right there. And everyone needs to see that it was addressed. And then the other time calling out is appropriate is when someone's been corrected. Multiple, they've been called in multiple times. And now they just continue to choose. At that point, they're continuing to choose the behavior. And then it's you no longer get a private conversation, a, a teaching moment, if you will. You now get a slap on the wrist. You now get told in a way that is hopefully going to Permeate, permeate the thick skull that this is not acceptable. And I've done both. And it really depends on how harmful. As a professor, I've had I've had to do both. I always prefer calling people in. But there have been times when I've had to say, whoa, we're going to stop right here. We need to address what just happened. And we, we need to address what it did to the dynamic in this room. 
and and get it and it sometimes it's good sometimes it's good for everybody often it's not and somebody leaves not feeling great that that's why i i enjoy this conversation right now because the typical listener to my show is going to listen to this and go oh man i don't want to hear this and i want to challenge them to hear it and <laughs> listen to it and say where am i culpable for myself i have to do it as well it's not nobody's I don't use the word innocent or guilty, but nobody's innocent here. You, you, but you're guilty if you refuse to hear it and then make the changes. Yeah, all perspectives are incomplete. And I take comfort in that phrase. I really do. Because it, it takes the blame out of it. Of course, all per- perspectives are incomplete. How can I possibly see the world from your point of view? Yeah, you can't. How could I possibly know? And in building the relationship, what I need to do is, Tell me how you experienced that and what your perceptions were. And if our relationship is something that is going to continue, then what we need to do is find a way for us both to see. Can you see how someone would have felt this way if this had happened? And that's the empathy builder right there. But I am not un, uh, unfamiliar. I am not unfamiliar with being in a situation where someone does not want to be in the room for the training I'm providing. It's very common. <laughs> it just happened this past week. And my biggest triumph as a facilitator always comes from someone who says, I walked in this morning thinking I have to be at this damn and by the end of it going, wow, I got a lot out of that. And I always joke, yeah, it's great to preach to the choir because, hey, they're going to amen you all day long. And it's that's good praise. I like that. Amens feel good. But it's a lot more fun to convert somebody. It's a lot more fun to get the person who was like, I'm here, but they've got their their arms are crossed and they've got that scowl on their face. I'm right. here, but you can't make me learn anything. That body language is um, screaming at you. <laughs> yep. And what was nice is the two gentlemen that said that this week, they were in my trauma supportive care class. The two guys that said that at the end of the day, I had that vibe, but they really, their body language really wasn't going, screw you for making me be here or screw whoever made me be here. But at the end of the debrief, they said, got to let you know, one of the things we talk about is mindset. So we talk about have to versus get to. Right. I have to do this versus I get to do this. And he said, I was definitely a have to. He said, but now I feel like I got to. This was a get to. And I was like, there's a win. There's a win for you. Huge win for me. And I even had people at the conference who came up to me at dinner that night after my presentation who said, the only reason I came to your presentation is that the rest of my group was going. Right. And they said, hey, come with us. He said, I really wasn't expecting to get a lot out of it. He said, yours was the, the most informative we've been session go- I went to. We've been going for about an hour and a half now. And I hopefully know, you'll cut some of this out. Eh, we'll see. I, I babble. No, I like the babble, <laughs> but I'm also, we've also talked about having you back on to talk from the trauma informed perspective mm-hmm. as well. I do think that's an important piece for the listeners to hear, especially that's what we're doing here. We're talking right. about trauma here. I just, right. this was a topic today that I wanted to talk about with, with on air and bring to light some of the subjects, maybe start to affect some modicum of change, that would be fantastic. Even if it starts to change how someone interacts with 
only one or two people. I don't care. We're starting mm-hmm. some change. What I'd like to wrap up with, and I don't know if you've listened to a show or not, and it doesn't matter. I, I have. Asked, <laughs> I asked, so I asked my two questions at the end of every show, being an everyday carry based on the fact that I named this podcast after a book, and the book was called The Things They Carried, and it was a Vietnam novel. And it was the things they carried into war, but then it focused more on what they carried out, those scars, the emotional scars, okay. the traumas they carried out. And so the things we all carry is just that. We carry everything to a call, but we bring something out with us that, that we have to try and grapple with somehow. So I'd like to ask people about an everyday carry, something that you like to have on you or in your possession Every day that you leave home without it, you're like, oh, no, I feel naked. You didn't prep me for this question. I know I didn't. <laughs> I know I didn't. The second question is easy for you. The, okay, so let me go with, I'm going to go with the non-tangible because I don't know that there's a Perfect. tangible thing. But my intention for the day is probably the thing. It's important for me to set my intentions every day as I go into my day because In order to do the work that I do, I have to be mindful and I have to be present. And if I haven't done the stuff I need to do internally, I absolutely cannot be those things. And so I set my intentions before I leave. And that creates a sense of preparedness for me so that I feel like I can handle whatever the day throws at me. And then even if I get a curveball somewhere, I still know that I've got tools to I like get it. through right. through it. So. I like it. That's a that's a great answer. And I, I can't think of anything. No, terrible. it's all right. I used to have I did I used to have a ring that I wore that was it was my graduate class ring, but it doesn't fit me anymore. I need to get it resized. But for me, that symbolized the achievement of graduate school, which was a huge hill for me to climb. I went through a lot of personal, emotional crap in grad school. And the fact that I made it out and that I achieved that that goal was huge. And so my grad school ring used to symbolize for me my perseverance and my ability to get through whatever the day throws at me. But yeah, I don't have a tangible anymore because... I just don't. So let's move on to a book. And I know you're going to be okay. back on the show. So I'm going to, I'm going to oh, just ask for God, one book. You just have me to pick my favorite child. <laughs> it's like nearly impossible. One book that has to do with what we talked about today. One book of anything. It doesn't matter. It's just something that you think that would be interesting and valuable. All right. I'm not good at always remembering titles. So I'm scanning my bookshelf right now. And I don't know that it's there. If you, if somebody wants to get interest into, I know the last name is Johnson, but that's pretty vague. So let me get <laughs> be a um, lot of hits to Google. Yeah. Here, <laughs> let me see. What is that book called? Oh, it'll be easier if I do it on Amazon instead of trying to Google it. I read this in grad school and I've read it a couple of times. It's very accessible stuff and it takes us, of course, I'm not going to find it. Oh, see, now I need, this is the book I want, but I can't find it. I know the guy's name is Johnson. Not that helps. But it's, he talks about his two One about gender specifically and then one about generally diversity. 
well, and I, I, I will you. have to get back to you. I'm going to get it to you. I will. Um, and that's perfect. I can put it in, in the intro and it'll be just fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now I've got a goal for today. Okay. Gotta, you do that. If you get a chance, it. pass it on to me. I'll put it in the intro and, okay. uh, and we'll go from there. That'll work just fine. Yeah. Yeah, a, pre- I could sh- a preparation. That would have been a good preparation question. I know. I know. I <laughs> failed you on that one. Yes. <laughs> Still learning this whole podcast thing. So sometimes people have to bear with me. I thank you very much for the discussion today. I think it's very valuable. And I hope that my listeners will stay tuned throughout the whole show. And if I don't, if they don't, then I'm, I hope they question themselves a little bit. Yeah, I wish, I do hope that, and I wish that I could have been more mindful of that towards the beginning in terms of could have been helpful for us to begin here in order to, what I was telling you, like when I do a workshop, I work really hard in the beginning to create a sense of safety and connection for my participants so that they don't shut down before we start and I am really used to, in my classes and in my workshops, approaching difficult conversations. Nothing I ever teach is easy. And because of that, I work really hard to make sure that my participants aren't feeling called out. Gotcha. I work really hard to make sure that we all start some that I am as guilty as anyone has ever been. I'm further along in my journey than some people because I started earlier. I became aware that there were things I didn't know and that there were things I wasn't doing well when I was an undergrad. And so it became one of those really important things to me. If I'm going to get people to hear me and how the society and we'll trickle that down to their behavior caused by what they learned in our society is affecting me and how I want that to change. Then I need to be open to hearing how my behavior can be harmful to others. And I need to be willing to open to change what I'm doing as well. And I want to be transparent enough to say I have committed microaggressions probably to every possible group and they're unintentional microaggressions are always unintentional and they become intentional aggressions they stop being microaggressions when people point them out to us and we keep doing them then they just become aggressions but microaggressions really are we often believe we are complimenting someone or we're saying a good thing to someone um or it's innocuous like it's a there's no feelings involved in what I'm talking about. And that's what makes it a microaggression. And it's that repeated that people get bombarded with that stuff all the time is what makes the buildup of it hard to deal with. But I am just as fallible as any other person. I am guilty of doing things that were hurtful to others that I need to take responsibility for. But I'm always approaching these opportunities as growth opportunities. And I give myself permission to have made mistakes, to ask for forgiveness, to forgive myself. Um, And I just ask for them to have that same awareness because that's how we grow. And people will so appreciate that from you when you provide them with more safety and connection within that relationship. They are really 
you'll notice a change in your relationship with others. When you see someone who's been othered by society and by people, when they recognize you as an ally, you'll see it in them. Their body language will change. They'll be like, so grateful you're there. And there's a feeling that comes from that where you're like, I am so glad I could be this person's safe space that I helped them navigate this arena a little bit easier today because I was there and I had an awareness. I gain a lot of personal satisfaction from that. And so even the staunchest got walls six, six feet deep. You can't teach me anything. I don't know what this crazy liberal woke sociology lady has for me. I see where you are (laughs) and society puts you there. And you don't have to be there if you don't want to be. And I'm not scary. And I'm just going to offer you some tools to make your life better and easier. And so that you can be a better version of yourself for others. If you pick up those tools, great. And if you choose not to right now, that's okay, too. We all got to stay safe in our own way. So I guess that's where I would have wanted to start. Again, thank you very much. I do appreciate the conversation. I've taken up about two hours of your Sunday now. So go enjoy some coffee and dogs and recharge a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. This, You know what? This kind of thing recharges me. So as, as crazy as that might sound. But there are situations that drain you and situations that energize you stuff like this always good conversation about important things always energizes me so thank you for another opportunity to have a great conversation awesome you're welcome thank you very much all right have a good day i'll be in contact about another sounds great i'm looking forward to it take care you too bye-bye and we're out thanks for listening to another episode of the things we all carry Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves, and remember to check in on each other.